0: going back in history uh, quite a few years uh, two men historically significant each one of them the first was a key defender in the early church of what today we would say is orthodox Christology that is he was a defender of the teaching about Jesus who he was God the Son not a created being he was a key defender in the early church of Orthodox Christology, he was the first leader in the early church to recognize the 27 epistles or books that we call the New Testament. Yet, he was replaced in his office of bishop when he fell out of favor with the emperor. And like Paul, uh, most of his writings were done, we still have many of them today, most of his writings were done from exile. He was nicknamed by his enemies the Black Dwarf. Black because he was dark skinned, he was an Egyptian, and dwarf because he was so small physically. This man was exiled five times by four different Roman emperors. He spent 17 of the 45 years he would have served as a bishop in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. This was Athanasius. And. Today, Athanasius is seen as the key guy for us historically. He was the guy, but you know he wasn't in his day. He was rejected in his day. His opponent, his key opponent was described this way by someone who knew him and heard him and saw him. Tall in stature, uh, like a guileful servant, well able to deceive any unsuspecting heart through a cleverly designed appearance, He spoke gently, and people found him persuasive and flattering. And that's the description of Arius, the key opponent of Athanasius, and the heresy, Arianism, still bears his name today. In their lifetimes, uh, the first major church council was called the Council of Nicaea. You've probably heard of it. Officially, Athanasius won the day at that council, and the church embraced officially a Christology that said Jesus was not a created being, as Arius said he was, but he was in fact very God of very God. The trouble was, the Caesars, the emperors, they didn't side with Athanasius, they sided with Arius. So even though Athanasius' view held sway sort of in the church officially, the truth was he continued to be persecuted by Constantine and Constantine's heirs after the fact. He had the right position, but he wasn't recognized for that most of his day. If these two guys showed up in the church today or you saw them on television this morning, who would you believe? Who would you believe? One... One is uh, rejected by the people in the know, the important place people. He's been arrested. He's not much to look at. He's kind of short, physically unimpressive. Here's this other guy, tall, handsome, good-looking, articulate. You know, the people that are in the know, they like him. Who would you be tempted to listen to? What would your natural proclivity be? Probably towards the tall, handsome, well-spoken, well-received guy, wouldn't it? I mean, whose credentials and what kind of credentials would we say? That's the guy. Based on his credentials, that's the guy. You know, so the short, dark guy, he presents the Jesus that the apostles had presented. This is in the 300s. And the tall, handsome guy, like the pseudo-apostles in Paul's day, he presents another Jesus and another gospel. But he's the guy that's got the popular view in his day. You know, now, it's Athanasius that we see as a hero, but in his day, that was not the case. He was rejected by those around him. What credentials are adequate to determine who we believe? We're in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 21 through 12, verse 6. Welcome, Michael. And Paul in his day was like Athanasius in his. He had a tough time convincing people that he was in fact God's spokesman and that they should listen to him instead of his opponents who were presenting a different Jesus and a different gospel. And so in the text we're in this morning, Paul brings out his credentials. And if you remember, we've said this passage of 2 Corinthians is called the Fool speech. Paul believed that bragging was foolish because it was coming down to the level of this world to present your case about a Christ who came from a different world. But he says, because these guys are so hip to brag about themselves and because you listen to braggarts, I'm going to stoop down foolishly to their level just to answer their charges. So they've presented their credentials, Paul says, and now I'm going to present mine too. We'll look at three credentials. We'll focus on the middle one primarily. This is another lengthy passage. Guys as we 've gone through this letter we 've chosen large chunks at a time, and if you start to feel a little drowsy as I read through, Jess, remember that the early church they sat through thirteen chapters read just in a line, and if they could stay awake through that i 'll bet we could too, just a few few verses okay second corinthians eleven twenty one through twelve six Paul continues he says to my shame. I must say that we have been weak by comparison with these pseudo-apostles. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, his opposition, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. Now he's returning tit for tat their claims. You'll see he rebuffs here with his own claims. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Now here, Paul's not saying they're servants of Christ. He said they're servants of Satan, whether they know it or not. But that's their claim. And it's what the Corinthian church thinks they are. He says, I speak as if in saying I more so. I'm far more of a servant of Christ. Now he starts ticking off what he considers his primary credentials here. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, in the ocean or the sea. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, not even having appropriate clothing to stay warm or food to eat. Also, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch, or the ruler under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. That incident, by the way, in Acts chapter 9. Paul's definitely boasting about his weakness. He's small enough to be let down through a window in a basket. He's like he's being let out like the garbage is, little guy let out through the window down the wall. Up into chapter 12, he says, Boasting is necessary, they've made it necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now he switches some new set of credentials. I know a man in Christ, and here he is referring to himself, even though he switches to third person, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. We would, in Paul's view, the sky is heaven above us where the birds fly, the starry area, that's heaven, and the third heaven would be the place where God himself lived. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast... But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. If you remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul there had talked about afflictions and hardships, and here he ups the ante. You know, we quote verses like 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But which one of us has experienced maybe a single one of the persecutions or the cost of discipleship which Paul enumerated in this list? You know, the truth is it's unlikely that any of us in this room will suffer any of the things perhaps that, That Paul did in his cost to be Christ's chosen spokesman. If you and I were to brag about the cost of our following Christ, and it was in line with what Paul's doing today, would we have anything to brag about? I mean, on one hand, he says, bragging's not profitable, but I'm reduced to it so when he says, I brag, I'm actually bragging about my weaknesses. And we'll see in the next passage in 2 Corinthians 12 why that's important. Weakness is a big deal to God and to Paul. But if we have areas of weakness to brag in, what do they look like? What has been the cost of our discipleship? That's what Paul's promoting primarily is his credentials here. Paul says his credentials primarily are his sufferings. His credentials are the cost he's born to represent Christ. Now, three sets of credentials. The first one, very briefly, verses twenty two through twenty three A, Paul echoes the pseudo apostles that they're Jewish. When these guys came across, we assume from Palestine to Corinth, they said, Guys, you should listen to us because we've got a, a spiritual spiritual heritage that's important. We're Jews. We're Hebrews, we're descendants of Abraham. We know a thing or two about this Hebrew Messiah, Jesus. So you should listen to us. Part of our credentials is our ethnic background and our history, our personal heritage as Hebrews. And so Paul says, well, Corinthians, if that's important to you, if if historical ethnic credentials, if being a Jew is important to you, then understand that I have those same credentials. They say they're Hebrews, gosh, so am I. They're Israelites, so am I. They're from the same people group that Jesus the Messiah comes from. You know what? So am I. So on that footing, as we brag, they brag, and now I foolishly brag, he says, wow, I've got the same set of credentials they do. They're Hebrews, and so am I. It's the second arena, verses 23 through 33, where Paul, though singularly says, these are uniquely my credentials. And you know, the funny thing is, it's not the kind of thing most of us would brag about to get somebody else to listen to what we have to say. His credentials are turned upside down. He mentions also the weight of responsibility he feels for the church, but primarily he says, my credentials, the reason you should accept me as Christ's spokesman, is the suffering I've borne in Christ's name, the cost of my discipleship. Now, if you look back through those verses, 24 different ways in which Paul says, I have borne cost as Jesus appointed apostle, as his commission sent one, 24 different ways in which I have borne the burden of that apostleship. You know, he mentions all kinds of things like exposure. He's in shipwrecks. He spent a night and a day in the ocean, adrift at sea. He's been exposed to cold weather, we take it. He's been beaten with rods. Think of the Asian uh, public canings today, something like that. You remember in one story in Acts, he says he was stoned and they thought he was dead. You know, when they left Paul stoned, he was a bloody pulpy mess. He looked dead. They thought he was dead. He had been stoned also. You know, also interesting, most of these things Paul says you don't read in the Bible anywhere but here in this letter. That is, he wasn't talking to other people about the cost normally that he was bearing to be an apostle. Most of the time he wasn't talking about it. Luke that wrote Acts, Luke traveled with him. And Luke doesn't record most of these. There's a couple things that are recorded in Acts and that's it because Paul wasn't making much of it. He stoops to brag about the cost here because he has to, but most of these he wasn't telling people about. Now this list, if you read through this quickly... This is one of the downsides of numbers and repetition. You know, if I said, wow, I came close to death one time and I told you the story about coming close to death one time, that would sound important. But if I told you I'd come close to death 20 times and start going through the list, by the third or fourth time, you're like, eh, it's old hat. One would be significant, you know, but you keep going and you lose the significance. So I just want to focus on one thing that Paul suffered just briefly. That's in verse 24 where he says five times... I received from the Jews 39 lashes. These aren't recorded. Again, not recorded anywhere. 5 times I received 39 lashes. Now, you know when Jesus was scourged before his crucifixion, that was a Roman scourging and their whips had 8 or 9 leather strips on them typically with wood, excuse me, wood, bone, or steel at the end of those leather straps so that when they whipped you, it, it would literally rip your flesh, those sharp pieces at the end. Um, brutal, and people often died from scourging, but they also often died from the Jewish 39 lashes. This was different, though. The Jews couldn't give more than 40 lashes according to the law. They reduced it by one to make sure they didn't make a mistake. The Jewish whip had three leather straps on it. So that each time a person was whipped, he was marked three times. He got three stripes with every whip. And I think it was Maimonides who said, he's, he's quoted as saying, that whoever was responsible to administer the whipping was to do so with all his might. There was no holding back. And what would have happened to Paul and anyone else who had this, they would have been put down on their back between two pillars, and their hands would have been stretched out, and they were tied in place. They were stripped to the waist, and then they would be whipped. And they were whipped about a third of the time on the front of their their chest, their torso. Then they'd be turned over, and the same thing would be done to their back. Now, you know, with each time a leather stripe comes across, welts and tears are happening in their skin. So they're being cut open by these leather stripes every time it falls. And they've got 39. He's got 39 And then later he did 39 more. And then later he did 39 more. And then another time he did 39 more. And another time he did 39 more. So, can you imagine if Paul stood up to that church and took his clothes off to show his body? What do you think it would have looked like? It would have been covered with scars. His torso, his back, his shoulders, his upper arms, all would have been covered with scars. Totally covered with scars. Red marks all over him. And he had this done five different times. One sometimes would kill a man. He was a wiry, strong little guy. Once could have killed you. He went through that five times. Now, in Galatians 6, verse 17 When Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, it was similar to here in that there were false Jewish leaders who'd come in and they changed the gospel. They said it's not by faith and God's grace in Christ alone. They said, no, you've got to be circumcised. They changed the message of the gospel. And Paul confronts them in Galatians. And near the end of that letter, he says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Now, we have brand marks here, but in Greek, that word is stigma. Stigma. If you're a Roman Catholic or have a Roman Catholic background, stigmata, uh, the marks of Christ, of his suffering. Stigma was something that was applied to a slave or to a soldier, and it was a mark that was applied by branding, by burning, or by cutting. And the name or the insignia of the owner or the general was burned or cut into the flesh of the slave or the soldier. And Paul says in Galatians, I bear the stigma of Christ. And I don't know if he was thinking about these stripes or not, but if he took his clothing off, he would show the marks, the proof of his ownership because he bore the same kind of marks Jesus himself did from his scourging so Paul says part of my credentials the cost of my discipleship I bear in my own body I carry the stigma of my owner I'm a slave to Christ he's my general he's the captain of my faith I bear the stigma the brand of Christ in my own body think of this for a minute too when Jesus is described in the second coming in Zechariah 12, it says that the Jews will look on him whom they pierced. If you go to John's gospel, you know that the Roman soldier comes when Jesus has been crucified and he stabs him with a spear. And it says blood and water came out to prove that he was actually dead. And Zechariah 12 is quoted there. But that same passage is quoted again in Revelation 1:7. Daniel's quoted, and Zechariah, behold, he's coming with the clouds. That's Daniel. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Jesus, the Messiah, is in part identified by the marks of his suffering when he returns. And Paul says, guys, I bear similar marks to my Messiah, to my king. His body was marked by his suffering for his Father's sake. My body has been marked like my Savior was in a very similar fashion. I carry in my body the marks of my ownership. I'm an apostle sent by Christ, and you can see it written in blood on my own body. The stigma of Christ. Just stop for a second and ask yourself, uh, what is the cost of my discipleship? What... What price have I paid for being a follower of Jesus Christ? And guys, I'm not saying don't go to the Philippines and, you know, flagellate yourself. We don't crucify ourselves, anything like that. Paul had a unique role in the church and in Christ's cause. And there's been no one else like him since. No one else with that unique call. I don't say that any of us should aspire to the cost of discipleship that looked quite like Paul's. But Jesus was clear that if we follow him in this life, there will be a cost to pay for being his disciple, his representative. So ask yourself, if you've known the Lord for a while, what cost have I paid in the cause of Christ? What cost have I paid? What credentials do I have because of the name of Christ and because I follow him? Jesus said, if they reject me... They'll reject you. What's the cost of my discipleship? The third set of credentials Paul claims here are in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, when he says, I know a guy in Christ who went to heaven. And when he says a guy third person, he clearly identifies himself as this guy. And I think out of humility he says, I it was such a glorious experience, I'm not sort of even claiming it. I, I speak in, in a third person. And apparently, kind of like Colossians 2, when Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, there were people there, and Paul says they're taking their stand on visions of angels they've seen. They're really religious. And they said, hey, I've had this out-of-the-body experience. I've, I've traveled to distant planets or whatever. I've had this experience, this spiritually deep, significant experience that no one else has. You should listen to me. Well, apparently, these pseudo apostles were claiming something along the same line. So Paul says, Well, I've had an out of the body experience too, or maybe I was in the body. He's not sure. When you read the revelation of John, last book in the Bible, John goes to heaven. And we're not sure. Did he go physically? Was he there physically, or was he there spiritually? We don't know. And Paul says, I don't know either, but I know I was there. And I heard things that I wasn't free to come back and speak or repeat. And so Paul says, just like their Jewish heritage, he says here, if they make a claim that part of the credential is they've had this supernormal spiritual experience, so they've got the right credentials, listen to them. Paul says, well, guys, I've got the same credentials. I've been to heaven. I've heard things I can't even repeat. So if that matters to you, if that's a good credential, I've got that one too, that one's covered too. See, the ones they don't have, Paul shares the first set of credentials, Jewish heritage. He shares the second or third set of credentials, spiritual experiences. What they don't share with Paul is the long list of credentials in between, suffering and the cost of discipleship in between. Now, in Acts 9.15, one of the things Luke did record switching gears back to Paul, was this. You remember uh, God arrests Paul essentially on the road to Damascus, interrupts his life. And God shows up to a guy named Ananias, and he says, Ananias, my man, go over to this street, go to this house. Saul of Tarsus is there, and I want you to pray for him. And Ananias, uh, he's a little slow, and he says, Lord, Wow, do you really know who this guy is? And, of course, he'd been heading to their city to persecute Christians. And so God tells Ananias, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias, he's my man, and I'll show him. As my chosen one, as my sent spokesman, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The persecutor becomes the persecuted in his call to follow Christ. This was all along God's plan for him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you remember, great book out now by Eric Metaxas, his biography, a Christian martyr, German, in Germany, martyred near the end of the war, had it right when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And of course, in the Roman world of Jesus and Paul's time, death was by crucifixion. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Suffer death with me. That's the call. The call is to suffering of one sort or another. If we follow Christ in this world, there will be a cost. And seriously, guys, if we say we're Christians and we're following Christ, and we, we have borne no cost, then I'd really question if we're really following Christ, if we're really obeying Christ. You know, we live in a nice age, and a nice culture, with nice people. And you know what nice gets you? Nice just takes you to hell. Nice just takes you to hell. You know, the Bible never commands us to be nice. I'm so struck by this. We Christians think we're supposed to be nice. We're never told to be nice, ever. We're called to be kind, and kind is an entirely different thing. Kind is telling someone the truth even when they don't want to hear it. You know, kind is interjecting the gospel in your conversations with people who have never heard of Christ or have heard some twisted, distorted version of the gospel and are going to hell and we dance merrily along. And we don't even tell them because we're nice and we don't want them to think we're not nice. And we're in a comfortable relationship. I'm modeling the gospel. Wow, really? You know, Paul says it's the message of the gospel that God uses to save people. We're to adorn the gospel, we're to confirm the gospel in the way we live, but guys, your lifestyle and mine, it doesn't save anybody. No one. It's the truth about Christ. That's what God uses to save. What cost have we borne in being Christ's disciple? We're not apostles, we're not going to be flogged in all likelihood. Probably not going to be stoned. Probably not going to get one set of 39 lashes. But are we willing to be misunderstood? Are we willing to be thought less than nice? Or are we willing to be thought they're out there because they're a Christian and they talk about Christ and it affects the way they live? Do we have any cost? Do we have any credentials if someone says, why should I think you're a Christian or a follower of Christ? Do we have any credentials? I want to close with just a really great story. I mentioned Richard Wurmbrand before uh, in the Second Corinthians teaching. It's, I think maybe it's in chapter 3 or 4. You can look it up if it's important. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. He's also the guy that started A Voice of the Martyrs, a, a ministry that we support monthly. Now, you know, if you read Tortured for Christ, it is, it's gripping and it's stirring. And the passages we read were about forgiveness. Uh, Wormbrand in uh, 65, he was ransomed out of the communist prison in Romania. He was a Lutheran pastor. This guy had been tortured, beaten, starved, I think it was for about 14 years in prison. He'd seen all kinds of other Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Protestant pastors, leaders tortured, murdered, starved, exposed you name it. Every kind of uh, shameful behavior that could be done on them was done by the communists. So Wormbrand gets out, <clears throat> goes to Italy, makes his way up to Oslo, and he's given a talk. And an American military officer hears him and he says, hey, you should go to the States. They need to hear this. You remember, 50s and 60s, the Cold War, we're in the middle of it. And the U.S. is really facing Soviet Union and all the satellites in Eastern Europe and communism. And it's a real threat. six months after his release from torture and deprivation he comes to the shores of the United States he hooks up with an American missionary that has been told to meet this is your liaison this is who's going to hook you up and get you going this story is told by his son Michael and the guy tells him uh, you speak good English but with a heavy foreign accent You're too old and too sick to pastor an American church. You could not possibly even raise a salary to maintain your family. You don't even have a driver's license or a car. He told him, you really ought to just head home to Europe. So, this is in Philadelphia, April 1966. So the guy's taking him back towards the train station. And this is part of what blows my mind. Wormbrand, he's been here five days. Five days. He's six months out of communist prison camp. Torture and murder all around him every day, that's all he's known. He's here five days. They're going towards the train station and traffic has slowed down. Cause the biggest pro communist rally in our nation's history, apparently, is occurring in Philadelphia. And they've got to get out. And Wormran's trying to hear, what are they talking about? So he goes up closer to the stage to hear what is being said. And it's a Presbyterian minister pseudo-apostle sounds like, praising communism. Now, this is what gets me. In his, day, his days in Romania when the communists took over, there was a rally, and all these pastors got up. And you know what they said? They said exactly what the communists told them to say. And Wurmbrand's wife says to him, uh, you need to go wipe the spit from Jesus' face. So, Wormbrand knew if he goes up and tells the truth, he's going to prison. And his wife has just told him, go to prison. And so he does. That's the kind of guy this was. So, do you know what he does in Philadelphia in 1966? He jumps on the stage in front of 60,000 people. And he pushes the speaker out of the way. And he says, Your Christian brethren suffer under communism, and you, a minister, instead of praising their Christian martyrdom, you praise their tortures. You are a Judas. You know nothing of communism. I am a doctor in communism. You can imagine this guy chagrined, I'm sure, reeling backwards. What do I say? What do I do? He says, he laughs, there's no such thing as a doctor in communism. So Wormbrand says, I will show you my credentials. You know what he did? He stripped to the waist in front of 60,000 people. This guy in the United States, five days Speaks English poorly. <clears throat> has no future, no hope here of anything. He strips to the waist, and he shows them the scars all over his body. And he says, "Do you think it's right for communists to inflict such pain and scars upon a fellow minister?" And you can imagine <laughs> the rally is over. the The policeman has scored him off the stage. The rally is over. But guess what happens? All the news people come up to him. You can imagine. This is good print. Wormbrand's on the cover of most of the papers throughout the United States the next day. And the picture of his credentials are on the front page of the U.S. papers. A guy who was being shipped back to Europe because he had nothing to give us and we had nothing for him. And God had other plans. And the marks on his body were his credentials. Because of that incident, he was then invited by the U.S. Senate to speak to one of their subcommittee meetings. And this you can read the transcript online. So he's standing, sitting before the subcommittee. There's, There's some famous pictures of him also you can see online. And he's speaking of the torture that he'd endured and the techniques that they'd used to murder other Christians. And he says, Never will a Westerner understand if I would not have the mark on my body, which are my credentials. And then one of the senators asks him, Would you mind removing your shirt? And so he apologizes to the ladies that are present and he strips to the waist and he does exactly what he did on this stage. And he shows them the scars all over his body. His chest is torso. If you've seen it in the pictures, he's got dents where there's no flesh left where he'd been tortured. That's what he did in front of the U.S. Senate. A broken, twisted body covered with scars. That's what. Richard Wernbrand said those were his credentials, the marks of his suffering, the cost of his discipleship in Christ's name. Those were his credentials, he said. So for us today, who are we going to listen to? What credentials matter? You know, is it the right seminary degree? Is it the right TV persona? You know, is it good looks? Is it a great speaking voice? What... What matters? Is it, is it that you're famous or well-placed socially or politically? Are those the credentials that mean we should listen to someone? Do we make the mistake the Corinthians did? Based everything on carnality. They judged the way the world judges. And think of this for just a second. They wanted to be impressive the way the world was impressive. And the world that was impressive in their eyes had crucified the Lord of glory. And they're still using that world standards to say, who represents Christ in their day. And Paul says, I bear on my body my credentials, just like Richard Wurmbrand would almost 2,000 years later. So what's the cost of our discipleship? Where are we willing to go in Christ's cause? What are we willing to do in Christ's name? Again, we're probably not going to face prison. We're probably not going to face any of the things Paul did. But make this personal, applicational for us. This means things like being uncomfortable with other people, guys, like being willing to talk about things that matter in a conversation that's going nowhere about mundane things that are inconsequential in eternity's sake anyway. And kids, let me mention you guys again if you're... say if you're still living at home. And if you claim to be a Christian, are you willing to be thought uncool by your peers Are you willing to do something really radical like obey your parents, which is what King Jesus tells you to do? If you're a child living in your home under your parents, are you willing to obey your parents? Are you willing to practice purity until you get married? How about this one? Are you willing to refuse gossip in any and all forms about the people you know, the people you go to school with, your friends on Twitter or Facebook or anything else? I mean, the cost starts just at little things like, are we willing to do the right thing right where we are? And if somebody else thinks I'm less cool, and man, if you're, you know, if you're a kid in school, I mean, peer approval is everything. Am I willing to just be uncool? Forget the whippings, forget imprisonment. Am I just willing to be uncool? And at work or at school, in our families, in our neighborhoods, Do people know we're Christians? Do they know we're Christ's disciples? We're His followers? Do we have any credentials as followers of Christ? Lord Jesus, this world scourged you, mocked you, whipped you, and finally crucified you. Lord, you died in weakness, and yet you rose in power and glory, and you've called us to follow your lead to take up our cross daily, Lord, to die to what we were, to die to our own self-aspirations, Lord, to bear in our own person the costs of discipleship, the high cost of following Jesus in a world that rejects him. God, would you help us to bear some kind of marks, to bring about some kind of credential simply because we're willing to be your spokesperson in the spheres of influence you give us here and now. Lord, thank you for people like Richard Wormbrand. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for reminders in our own life of people who are willing to take a stand for you, to suffer rejection or mocking or humiliation or just being thought uncouth, Lord, by naming your name. Help us to follow in their steps and in yours. In Jesus' name, amen.